welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host this week, Jeff Hankoff. Uh, in this episode of Russian Roulette, I sit down with Aaron Schwartzbaum, who is the founder and former editor-in-chief of BMB Russia, uh, formerly the Bear Market Brief, which is a blog and daily news brief backed by the Foreign Policy Research Institute uh, that focuses on Russia's economy, business climate, uh, and political risk environment. Aaron used to work at Eurasia Group uh, and is a researcher for the Eurasia and Global Macro Practices and recently finished his MA in International Relations at Johns Hopkins. Uh, last and certainly not least, uh, Aaron is a former intern uh, here in the Russia and Eurasia program at CSIS, uh, one of our uh, success stories that we're very proud of. We're going to talk about the Russian economy, myths, facts, and mysteries, uh, Russia's economic outlook. Um, but then we're also going to move a little bit away from that uh, and talk about Aaron's own experiences starting and running the news brief uh, and what it's like to be uh, a member of the millennial generation in the Russia field. Uh, so let's get started. Today, I'm in the studio with Aaron Schwartzbaum, the founder and director of BMB Russia, which is a news brief uh, analytical firm looking at the Russian economy. Or, well, Aaron, how would you characterize it? Yeah, I would, just, I would say it's a, a daily news brief uh, focused on Russian politics um, and the economy and uh, more broadly the intersection of the two. Um, not quite a firm yet, but maybe someday. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to have aspirations. So this is a, a company that you, or an initiative that you started up here pretty recently. What uh, led you to, to decide to do that? Uh, yeah. Uh, so just uh, since I will be mentioning companies on this podcast, I just want to clarify I'm speaking for myself here. Um, but I, at a previous job in the political risk world, um, was on a team and basically built a, a daily news brief for them because they were facing clients and uh, busier than I was <laughs> um, and decided uh, upon starting grad school, and I'm actually just finishing uh, SICE, which is the Johns Hopkins program here. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I would spin it off into its own thing. Uh, there wasn't really a product in this space, or at least not a public-facing one, uh, that explains um, explains Russia's economy and politics, um, but certainly the economy, and especially in a way that's more readily accessible to people. Uh, one of the things that we really try to focus on at the brief is is putting things in context. So you know, throwing around a lot of business or complicated economic terms that, that may be interesting to a, a small sliver of people, but explaining what that means for people who might not have a background in finance, I think. Uh, is is the value add we we bring? Yeah, well, this is an interesting idea because you know the scale of the Russian economy is comparatively limited. I think the exposure of American companies to the Russian economy is comparatively limited. So, who are you trying to reach? I mean, and who are you finding is is really interested in the product that you're putting out? So we actually have readers at uh, kind of different verticals, I guess you could say that word. Picking, especially <laughs> given given the topic, it's not uh, just the power vertical. No, no, no. Um, so we have um, actually some in the diplomatic sphere. Mm -hmm. um, we have people in the private sector, um, political risk worlds, um, political economists in academia, um, our fans, and then some students as well, just who are trying okay. to get a sense of what's going on in Russia. So there's definitely broad interest. Some corporates too, um, but as you mentioned, uh, there's not a lot of uh, American companies. 
uh, with really, really big business. There's a, there's a couple of, of large mm-hmm. ones, but um, it's investments aren't really pouring in these days. <sighs> yeah. But people are still interested in Russia. I think regardless of uh, where money is moving, uh, mm-hmm. people are definitely looking towards Russia. I mean, insight they can get into what's actually going on. Yeah, and I think understanding the political economy is actually fairly important because the Russian political system to a significant degree is predicated on the idea of controlling and distributing access to to wealth. Um, And I think, you know, if you want to figure out what's happening in Russia politically, as in so many other things, it's helpful to follow the money. No, in in, in a big way. Um, There was actually, uh, it was uh, Sberbank CIB, their uh, investments wing just had a Another bombshell report yesterday basically saying Gazprom is great at making money for its uh, subcontractors and maybe not adding to any shareholder value, which is just one of these kind of crazy political economy <laughs> stories that have kind of – I like kind of keeping a, a mental checklist of like mm-hmm. the, the, the best things I've, I've seen and this would have to be – have to be one of them. Yeah. Another one I remember is that uh, Russian companies, including Gazprom, build the most expensive pipelines in the world per you know kilometer because so much of the money that's going into the product or to the project is being siphoned off in one direction or another. Yep. So it's not even about making money so much as it is about undertaking things for, for basically political reasons. Now, have you found that you or people you work with have have been surprised by certain things about the way the Russian economy works or how it's been um, durable in the face of sanctions and all the other headwinds that it's facing? I think that's uh, one of the interesting challenges uh, in describing an economy that, not even speaking as an outsider, we can uh, look at what uh, the economists and experts there are saying. it's this very interesting conflux of a poorly managed economy that really needs serious reforms, but also one that's been on the same, on the other hand, uh, very, very well managed. I mean, Russia's central bank, its economic right. planners have done a, a fairly remarkable job keeping it stable. Um, and it's interesting, I guess they operate in a system they know they can't really reform, but wants to keep steady. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, I, I'd be very curious to, to have an off the record talk with one of these one of these folks uh, mm-hmm. one day. Just, I'm very curious what they'd actually think about how things are managed because they're almost operating with a, a hands tied behind their back. They can't do what they would really have to to really boost the economy, but at mm-hmm. the same time, they've kept it from going under quite well. So Right, which again sort of comes back to the idea that it's all ultimately about the politics um, and that yes, you know, you could take steps to maximize economic returns, but doing so would undermine other political goals, which the regime has decided for one reason or another are more important. Yeah, it's, it's, the, big, it's the biggest challenge I think Russia faces policy-wise. I mean, I think as far as the, the use of this brief, um, there's a lot of a lot of in the states here, um, a lot of focus on you know Trump Russia and all that good stuff. But uh, actually, what's happening in Russia often gets uh, less of uh, less of a view. And I guess if I have an editorial angle, that we don't really have one, it's that like Russia is a real country that actually has domestic <laughs> concerns. It's not like a, a magical country full of you know spies and hackers mm-hmm. that's just it's a real place right. um, with real people and including spies and hackers well, among them but uh there there are other interests um and uh it's understanding what's actually happening over there will educate hopefully um how the u.s treats the country i mean that would be the the ideal hope um and it's i think especially now russia despite the news about foreign policy is actually increasingly looking inward as mm-hmm. Putin may or may not be in his last turn. But uh, uh, that's the big question, I guess. 
Right. Well, and what that would mean for you know Americans, including American companies who might be interested in in doing business in Russia. You know, I think the the paradigm that American policy, and not just American, but sort of Western policy in general, had towards Russia for most of the post Cold War era, has been we want to deepen economic ties, we want to integrate Russia into the global economy, and in doing that, we're going to make them. Well, as Robert Zellick said about China, a responsible stakeholder in the system. And now it almost seems like the policy imperative is going in the other direction. Um, and so I'm curious if you have thoughts about you know, whether you think that that kind of disentangling uh, economically is going to have longer term implications for foreign policy, for U.S.-Russian relations, for Russia's adherence to the, the, the rules and norms of the system. It's an interesting question. I mean, at least recently, Russia has grown more economically isolated. I think that's the broader trend. Uh, import substitution is, or at least was until recently, kind of the, the word of the day um, and was a, a major focus. And for all of the talk of building uh, sustainable long-term uh, ties with China, uh, it, it's improved uh, the business climate as far as Russia to China goes. I don't see it quite thriving or booming uh, the way that Russian authorities at least are hoping that uh, this would just replace the West. Um, Russia's economy, that said, is not going anywhere. Um, and especially with the U.S. taking uh, increasingly hard line on Iran, and there's more daylight between the U.S. and Europe, um, that may lead ultimately to Europe to not necessarily take a, a pro-Russia stance, um, you know, with countries like Poland exerting influence there. That's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly a more, a more measured one uh, compared to the United States. And that matters more for Russia because... The business links are with Europe and uh, largely not the United States. Yeah, and of course, Poland is very much on the outs within Europe because of things that are happening domestically there. Um, you know, Italy looks like it might be getting a new government that's going to be very pro-Russian compared to where the previous one was. Um, and even you know, Putin and Merkel met recently, uh, which a lot of the commentary assumed had something to do with Europe's hedging after the, the Trump administration's decision to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal. So I think that's a, a – you make a good point that as much as we think about policy towards Russia, including on sanctions, as being a, a unified transatlantic effort, the pieces are shifting around and we're not necessarily far from a moment where you may see the, the US and Europe on, on very different pages when it comes to engaging Russia. And I think it's – I think the U.S. policy towards Russia is quite a bit more locked in um, just for domestic political reasons um, than Europe is. So I would be looking uh, to Europe for kind of more interesting more interesting news as far <laughs> as Russia is going uh, – yeah. as far as Russia goes in the next in the next couple of years. Yeah. Well, for Europe, Russia is much more of a real country, right? Because it's right there on the doorstep. There are all of these trade and economic and other linkages that, that – the U.S. doesn't have. Um, and the U.S. can kind of say up to a point, you know, Russia's a problem. We're not going to deal with it. We're going to close our eyes and ears. But Europe doesn't really have that luxury, especially if Europe and the U.S. are not having a, a good time in their relationship. Um, let me ask you a little bit, since you mentioned China, about the Sino-Russian relationship. You know, you said that the um, the business climate for China for Chinese companies in Russia had improved, but not maybe as much as the as the Russian government would like. I mean, in, in what areas does that seem to be the case? Where are you looking at, at indicators that may have shifted here? Well, I think broadly you can see that, um, especially at the height of sanctions, um, 
Chinese financial institutions, uh, basically uh, adhering to sanctions they're not party to. Mm-hmm. Um, having uh, worked in in my past life uh, with uh, Chinese investors, they're extremely cautious. And Russian assets, I think, understandably, are viewed as uh, extremely risky. Um, they are there. It's a it's a it's a tricky investment. But going the other way, um, I think the most recent story is. Uh, the the CEFC Rosneft uh, deal was particularly interesting because um, uh, authorities and more broadly the business community made such a, a huge. Do you want to just for listeners, man? I know what you're talking. Yes. About. All right. So the the uh, short version of the story is that in order to make budgetary ends meet in 2016, Rosneft or Russia sold a stake in Rosneft uh, to. Uh, the Qatar Investment Authority and Glencore, which is mm-hmm. a major commodities trader. It's unclear who was actually backstopping the deal. It may actually have been Russia giving these companies money to buy a, a stake in itself. It's a very complicated, completely fascinating uh, story, but we can say that for another time. <laughs> and then later, Qatar Investment Authority, potentially due to sanctions, uh, unclear, uh, and Glencore announced that they would sell on a stake. Um, a large chunk of the stake they had purchased to this Chinese energy company called CEFC, um, which is an upstart in the Chinese energy space, um, as far as I've read. Um, not a really established player. It had mm. grown uh, rapidly. The uh, private company. Yes, a private company, critically. That's uh, unusual. And uh, what ultimately happened is the deal, I think was this was a couple of weeks ago, was formally canceled. But uh, in the fall, um, so last fall, uh, that would be fall 2017, there were reports that issues were beginning with the deal. Um, the head of CEFC was then put under house arrest um, and has kind of dropped off the radar since then. It's unclear where he is or what's happened to him. Um, and what's really interesting is it's it's almost a cautionary tale. Normally, when it comes to political risk, um, it's foreign companies enter Russia and mm-hmm. wind up in trouble. You don't normally think of Russia getting in trouble in that regard. Uh, but I think the, the key takeaway of this story and watching – Trump as a Russia person is is fascinating to see parallels of of how things work. They they, they made huge hay over this deal that this is the next uh, embodiment of the Russia Chinese alliance, um, right? And even if the Chinese never used the word alliance, and uh, they 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 really played this up, and it was just optics. It looks good for a while, but no deal actually came out of it. And I think so. Mm-hmm. R- regarding the Trump angle, there'll, there'll be a lot of big announcements. There's just kind of there's a communication style, but you have to actually see what winds up on paper, right? Um, and in this case, it was not uh, anything. There was no deal came of uh, came of the announcements. Mm-hmm. So. You know, understanding that and sort of understanding what you said before about the nature of Russian political economy that makes the country just very difficult to reform. Do you have a prognosis for sort of where the the Russian economy is going to be heading over the next year or so? Kind of understanding that a lot of that depends on things like oil prices that are really outside of the control of of the Russian authorities and and outside of Russia. I think one of the the biggest points I try to make uh, when explaining how Russia's uh, economy is, is that the oil price, it's important for their budget, um, but it's not as important for growth anymore, which Mm -hmm. I think is really, really critical. Um, Back in the last period of uh, strong growth, you know, the late 2000s, um, an oil price above 100, you get growth rates of 7%. um, But one of the things that often gets forgotten is that Russia's economy the, the trouble started before there were any right. sanctions, before the ruble got devalued, uh, before oil prices crashed. Um, so the issue is a growth model issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, just Russia's economy, 
they've they've turned on all the factories they can. So any additional growth is just going to be inherently more expensive, more costly, more difficult, um, and people don't want to invest. That's right. There is the key dilemma. Um, so higher oil prices give the budget a lot more room. Mm-hmm. They can make people happier by increasing social spending because of that. But the economy, I don't expect it. I'm not sure anyone is actually mm-hmm. expecting to take off. I would add furthermore that uh, Putin's fiscal goals, um, uh, boosting or not boosting, reducing the poverty rate uh, is is nice. Some of these goals are not realistic. Right. And, and, and some of them are going to be very expensive. And the expensive ones, uh, improving education and healthcare, that's not going to boost growth this year. That's mm-hmm. not going to boost growth next year or three years. That would be you know, five years at, at the very, very right. best. But if it's successful, it would be something that contributes to more and more sustainable growth. So the, the, the key question is, so the, the world average growth rate's about, what, 4%. Um, Putin has a stated goal of having Russia match that. Um, and it's very, very difficult to see where mm-hmm. where that comes from or that happening in the near future. I mean, that's for the political reasons. If, yeah. if Russia, if the politicians decided they wanted to have uh, as item number one, an economy growing at 4% a year, I have no question they could achieve that. But it would involve less spending on things like bridges to Crimea and, you know, payoffs to various oligarchs who are affected by Western sanctions and things like that. That's just people often will say, oh, it's better or worse. It's not really a better or worse question. It's just Russia's goal is not economic growth above all else. It's political stability first. And if economic growth uh, boosts stability, then that is a completely viable aim, but not ever economic growth at the the cost of political stability. stability. Yes. Yes. So, you know, that means the upside potential seems pretty limited. I mean, are there risks or or icebergs that you're looking at on, on the downside potentially? Oh, well, there's always the question of geopolitics. I think Russia is unique among kind of the emerging markets group. Um, there, there's geopolitical risk and geopolitics play a role for all of them. But Russia, I think, very uniquely, even, I mean, way more than China does, uh, has unique risks there. You know, what happens in Syria? What happens? I don't view like a conflict uh, as, as particularly likely, but there's also sanctions risk. Um I think what's really fascinating is you've seen kind of a shift from the Obama administration where Russia was in the driver's seat as far as being the unpredictable actor. Um, and now, right. I mean, Trump administration, there's like three different Russia policies within the same administration. And it's very unclear. I don't even know if the administration knows what it's going to do on Russia, uh, let alone the Kremlin. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see uh, things like sanctioning uh, Oleg Deripaska and sending aluminum markets into an absolute frenzy was unexpected. Um, I'm not sure the Kremlin really expected things to heat up that fast. Um, both sides have since taken a step back. Um, but it's, I think the the risk is actually as far as Russia goes is more coming from the United States than, than it is necessarily from Russia itself. I think uh, if Putin could keep things calm in Syria, very difficult question. I don't know if he can do that, but keep things calm in Syria more or less common Ukraine and kind of focus at home, he would be very happy to. It's just a question of whether mm-hmm. he'll be able to do that. Right. Although, you know, even those conflicts seem like the impact on, on Russia itself and on the Russian economy has been comparatively limited. I think Ukraine more than Syria in part because of, you know, the cost of, of border security and refugees and everything else. And there just isn't so much of that in Syria. But one of the surprising things has been actually how affordable these operations have been from Russia's perspective. Yeah, well, so 
Affordable, yes. I mean, they're clearly not spending a ton. The the costs human in terms of human lives has not been horrid. I mean, in Ukraine, I don't, I don't want to discount the the. Well, I mean, it, it's been high, just not humanitarian costs. But for as far as Russian soldiers yeah. go, uh, the costs have not been high. Let me be very very clear about that. Um, I think as far as the risks go to the economy, it's not necessarily the direct costs; it's the indirect risks. Mm-hmm. Um, if if Israel and the U.S. and Iran get into a shooting war. In Syria, Russia's there. That could get very ugly very, very quickly. So I don't mean the direct costs. Russia can clearly afford to keep these operations going. Mm-hmm. Even with the sanctions. Um, the question, of course, is is what then – what happens after? How long is Russia willing to, to, to keep the status quo going? Um, the term I've used is that uh, Putin – uh, kind of executed in getting into Syria like a perfect judo move where he you know, took the U.S.'s momentum or lack thereof and kind of got himself in a great position tactically and then looked around and realized he was standing in a minefield and now has to, to stay there and be a source of stability. And I don't know if there was really a, a long-term thought process there, even though the short-term move itself was quite brilliant. Yeah, well, I, I would... I make the analogy sometimes to various U.S. combat operations in the past where getting in is comparatively easy. I mean, you know, we're still in Afghanistan, what, 17-some years later. It's getting out that's hard. Um, And in Syria, you know, Russia has its various multilateral processes to try and hammer out some kind of a political deal that, you know, allows them to get out. The problem is everybody else has a vote in these affairs too. And what the Iranians want, what the Turks want, what the Israelis want, what Assad wants, these are not necessarily either compatible with one another or with what Russia wants. And Russia is the one that's, you know, as the U.S. has found in Afghanistan, kind of left holding the bag. Um, and that, you know, it's it, it's interesting to speculate what that experience might mean as far as thinking in Russia about potential future interventions um, and, you know, also what it might mean for the, the risks to the Russian economy. Now, so let me ask you a little bit about BMB, uh, how it works. You know, so you're, a, you're doing macroeconomic and political economy research. Are, are you you know, mostly doing it here in the United States? Do you have, you know, people on the ground in Russia who are, you know, sousing sources or or how does this actually? We've actually changed the way BNB Russia works a lot recently. Um, The format has evolved from random grad students doing this brief (laughs) in his basement to like a more professionalized team. Um, My friend and colleague Nick, who recently took over as editor-in-chief, now has two deputies helping him to build the brief every day. So there's kind of a, a more professionalized, institutionalized process. We've made a lot of jokes about how if only Russia could build institutions like we are, um, <laughs> just the kind of a more rigid structure people slot into versus one person being mm-hmm. the institution. Right. So you manage the succession question yeah, exa- more effectively. Ex- exactly. Um, there was no bloodshed involved. I'm happy to report. As far as coverage goes, so as much as we'd like to have a team of correspondents in Russia, that is not quite on the cards yet. We do have a team of uh, columnists, mm-hmm. is the term we use, um, that that focus on various specific elements within Russia's economy and politics. So in addition to like the macro coverage that's in the brief every day, every day of the week we'll have um, a certain focus. So on Mondays we have a columnist who does uh, the financial sector and specific views on individual economic sectors. So like right, like aviation or mm-hmm. automobiles, which might not get coverage in the actual right. uh, main chunk of the news brief just because it's too specific. But he'll look at stuff like that. Um, on Tuesdays, well, this has changed recently. 
But on Tuesdays, oh, is energy. So a specific look at the energy sector. Again, like if Rosneft is building a specific project, uh, there's actually really interesting news in Vietnam uh, where they invested yeah, in, right. in disputed waters almost ahead of Russian foreign policy, just yeah. kind of testing, testing the waters, so to speak. Yeah. Um, well, this has been going on for a while, though. Like Rosneft has had claims in, in the South China Sea that have not necessarily been in line with, with Chinese positions. And it's, it's been interesting watching the Beijing and Moscow try and manage this. So there's that. Uh, Wednesday, we have one of my uh, favorite columns just in terms of the topic is Telegram Gossip, where we report on <laughs> a, a number of uh, uh, channels dedicated to what they're saying about the Kremlin, which isn't necessarily you know news. Uh, mm-hmm. Not all of it's right. Uh, but it's also kind of really juicy a lot of the time and, and fun to read, um, kind of what the chattering classes in right. Moscow are saying or want us to be reading. Um, Thursdays is politics and more regional news focused on what's going on outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg and then politics more broadly. And then Friday, I still write a column kind of summarizing, hey, what's happened this week? What are the, the big takeaways? How do they tie into understanding mm-hmm. Russia? Um, so kind of a, a very zoomed out bird's eye view. Um, yeah, I think that more or less sums up the the shape of the brief in addition to serious news updates, we like to, to have a lot of fun. Um, we do sometimes a Russian word of the week. Uh, so we, what was your word of the week this week? I think the word of the week comes out Friday. Um, but uh, we did, uh, before um, I signed off as editor-in-chief, we did provocatia. Mm-hmm. It was a big one as far as understanding official statements. Um, uh, to to deny um, is a big one as far as reading uh, Kremlin spokesman Peskov's comments. <laughs> um, but we also are, are thinking of more themed weeks. So we had talked about, or we did uh, last year, uh, Russian Regional Flags Week, where we picked okay. some really, really awesome uh, local flags. There's one for um, the city of Zhelyaznegorsk, uh, which is a, it was at least in the Soviet Union, a prominent um, uh, nuclear industry town. The flag is literally this giant yellow bear crushing an atom <laughs> on this red background. It's the coolest thing like I've seen ever. Um, we're thinking uh, in the coming weeks or months uh, of doing a uh, bad Russian business acronyms week. Um, there's, I think one of the issues is in Russia's investment climate, it goes beyond institutions. Just some of these companies have absolute horrible mouthful names it's right. a soviet holdover yeah i was gonna say it's like reading Politburo transcripts or something it's you have like like you could have a company it's like like Soyuz yug mash and it's like mm-hmm. you know it's, it makes sense in the soviet it's just like the, the the union southern car plants you know which is what it is but it also might not sound great as far as Right, but it's a mouthful, especially if you don't speak Russian. Are concerned. Yes, for foreign investors, I think it's almost prohibitive. Um, but yeah, we're, there's some really, really n- loud examples, I would, I would say, of, of this kind of, uh, mm-hmm. uh, this kind of, of company. That, the one I mentioned isn't actually a real company, not to disparage right. anyone. So the, their stock's not going to fall because of no, what it's not, you said. And it probably, I mean, a lot of these companies wouldn't even be publicly traded anyway. But uh, yeah, there's some, there's some pretty, pretty interesting ones. They tend to be on a more local level. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, as far as just another soundbite, one of the issues with the privatization agenda, everyone always looks at, oh, like, are they going to sell Gazprom or Rosneft? But I mean, most of the state ownings are these like, these local unitary enterprises mm-hmm. kind of spread all over Russia. And selling them has actually been a real challenge. And kind of a, it goes under the radar because mm-hmm. it's not 
sexy like gas primer right. rust naft is but i mean like who wants to buy an undercapitalized factory in a small town in the urals yeah exactly uh, but that's that's i mean where the state has a, a really really enormous footprint and for actual russians mm-hmm. uh, a much bigger impact i think right well, yeah these are the the mono towns and yeah they can't shut the factories down because they provide social services for all the people who work there and live in the in the town but they can't make any money off of them and yeah, I mean, you know, talk about structural impediments or institutional impediments to economic growth. This is this is a good example. In a big way. Yep. Now we also have a it's uh biweekly. I hate that word because it doesn't make it clear whether it's every it's two weeks or bi- twice yeah, a week. Right. But a twice monthly um I guess you could call it an insert if we were an actual newspaper, but uh, a twice-monthly uh, added feature, uh, BNB Eurasia, mm-hmm. which is basically everything else in the rest of Eurasia other than other Russia, than Russia. Uh, which is we're currently overhauling. Um, we used to do it by country. We've now talked about doing it by issue set, so energy, uh, political news, and I think mm-hmm. security-related. Okay. Um, but that's also worth uh, worth noting is uh, our products we're hoping to really, really develop and turn into something uh, more regular. Um, so that's the plan for now. And beyond that, I mean, down the road, it would be uh, we're looking, have an eye on other BMBs, maybe mm-hmm. uh, specific issues, other regions beyond Russia. So there's uh, sky's the limit. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. Yeah. Um, and I should mention as well, just, and we'll add this. So I'm backed by a, a think tank uh, out, of, out of Philadelphia, FPRI, mm-hmm. uh, which is providing very generously, I would add, uh, funding to actually build a team and uh, make this a sustainable project. Cool. You mentioned that the the brief was started by and basically run by random grad students in in the basement. It was just me. Yeah. Was initially. Well, yeah. Um, and that's been one of the things that has been really kind of neat about it is that it's been a a way to sort of bring together a younger cohort of of Russia and Eurasia watchers uh, around. Uh, a product that kind of fills a space that hasn't really been filled up to this point. Um, you know, we talk a lot about the sort of generational divide among Russia watchers, how there's still a lot of people whose experience of Russia is really experience of the Soviet Union and then think about it through that prism. You know, there's not a lot of people sort of in between who, you know, came of age in the 90s when it seemed like Russia was old news. Um, but now there is this sort of younger cohort of people coming up of which, you know, you're one. Um, and I'm curious, you know, how you think that the the outlook of, of people of, of your generation, you know, your, what'd you say, 27, um, how it compares uh, on developments in Russia and U.S.-Russian relations, what's sort of different about it compared to, you know, maybe how, how, old fogies like me uh, <laughs> it's i think uh, kind of a concerning trend um i would say it was different until very recently um not necessarily your generation but especially the baby boomers the kind of outgoing class of policymakers still have i would say almost like not necessarily inborn but very very intensely ingrained distrust of russia and russians it's just russia is enemy mm-hmm. um I think my generation, uh, broadly, the distrust of Russia is surrounding specific policy issues, but it's not that Russia bad. It's more like, hey, we disagree or we have conflicts in areas X, Y, Z. With all the stuff happening with Trump, unfortunately, I I see that changing where there's kind of a more inherent or increasingly a more inherent distrust of the entire country, which I think is – that's hard to to shake out of that kind of just will remain with a generation forever, essentially. Um, I think 
it's not necessarily great for policy going forward. And that's a shift I see happening now. Um, mm-hmm. But I think still for the, the most part broadly, there's, I guess, a, a better potential for cooperation just because distrust is, is issue-centric. Mm-hmm. I would note this is... Uh, it's uh, hard to speak for an entire generation, well, of course. But... That, but also as far as the Russians I've met over there are mm-hmm. concerned, yeah. it's also not like America bad. It's... You're right. Why are you guys opposing us in Ukraine? But it's again, it's focused around specific points of disagreement versus right. rather than it's like an ontological thing. Yeah, wholesale distrust. Yeah, I mean, so in your case, you know, what led you to to Russia? How did you decide that this was something that you know, made sense to to focus on as a career? Um, so there's, I guess, a couple of facets of that. Um, I have some family history from Eastern Europe during World War II. Long story. Um, I fenced in high school and had a coach from Moscow who more or less beat my interest into me. Uh, it was kind of like... <laughs> With a sword. <laughs> yeah, uh, essentially. I just wanted to know what he was screaming at me and got very, very curious. Uh, but I've always been interested in international politics and, mm-hmm. politics and sort of strategic questions, military stuff. Uh, broadly speaking, that's the technical term. Yeah, that, uh, that got me interested. And I think the... F- First thing I found, I mean, my interests as far as Russia are concerned have evolved dramatically over the years, um, not necessarily at my own choosing. They've kind of done so by themselves. So when I started uh, after undergrad, I was focused on the North Caucasus. And it's actually ironic being back uh, here at CSIS because my DC Russia career started at CSIS here in 2013. um, And I'm now moving out of DC tomorrow and back here at CSIS. So kind of like Russian, right. deep Russian literary <laughs> moments here. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's full, something very Dostoevsky. Full, full circle. Um, but yeah, so I started with a very, very intense security focus on North Caucasus, uh, Islamic extremism in Russia, and then more broadly strategic issues, and then have since evolved to really specialize in the economy and domestic politics. And I'm still interested in um, the military and airplanes specifically, just kind of a hobby. But uh no, uh, specifically Russia's economy, uh, reform issues, and the mm-hmm. domestic agenda has become yeah. my bread and butter. But, I mean, I'm curious about this question because, you know, people aren't born Russia specialists or, or people are aspiring Russia specialists. You know, there probably aren't even a lot of people in their kindergarten class who, you know, when the teacher goes around and asks them what they want to be when they grow up, you know, I want, I want to be a firefighter, or I want to be a doctor, or I want to be, you know, a Russia analyst. I mean, I don't think that happens very much. And so what the, the sort of triggering mechanism is, is, is always kind of interesting. And I think for people who grew up during the Cold War, I mean, it was obvious, right? Like this was this sort of big existential threat that was dominating all aspects of American foreign policy. For people who are coming of age now, I think it's a much more diverse, interesting, dynamic set of, of, of arrangements. And so – but what's been interesting too is that you know it seems like there's a, a larger number of people who are now making the decision to study Russia. And I suppose some of it probably is connected to the fact that Russia is in the news all the time. There is increasingly this perception of Russia as a, a threat or a challenge. Um, but I think there's, there, there's more to it than that. Um, and and it, to me, it, it, it's interesting to see how this, you know, sort of emerging generation of people who have spent time in Russia, who know the language, who, who have a pretty good understanding of Russia is going to change the way that we as a country and, and potentially we as a political system engage with all things connected to Russia. Um, of course, you know, it, it's too early to, to tell how that's going to play out, but it, it'll be worth watching. Interesting. And anecdotally, um, I would I would note that at least what I'm hearing from my undergrad department, there is like significantly more interest 
um, in studying Russian than there was mm-hmm. when I was uh, when I was coming through. Yeah. Um, so I think what's happening in politics in the world now um, is it really attracting interest. There's just going to be just inherently just a delay. Yeah. Um, the the crisis begins. There are some people, not a ton of Russia specialists, but people who are here in the field. But then the interest will follow a politics. So I'm sure in like another give or take, you know, four or so years, there'll be a be, right a whole new crop. Yeah, for absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was in college, this was in the late 1990s to date myself. Um, I went to a big state university with, you know, 25,000 students. My advanced Russian class had three people in it. Um, it just was not something that, you know, that people paid much attention to or, or put a lot of effort towards. And now, again, anecdotally talking to, to people I know who, who teach in the field around D.C., you hear that enrollment is up. I mean, I know of a lot of students who want to go spend time in Russia, actually be exposed to it, learn something about the country on the ground. Um, and it seems like there really has been that that shift. Um, and, you know, for the most part, I think that's that's good. Um, and certainly in contrast to the Cold War, to have people who've spent a lot of time on the ground in Russia, um, which was something that was very hard to do during the Cold War, um, hopefully means that, you know, when those people are in influential positions as policymakers or journalists or whatever it is, they'll be, they'll come at it with a, a, a more concrete, more real understanding rather than just a, a kind of series of ideological predilections. I think actually one of the things Russia's government has figured out, there's the whole uh, news about Telegram and trying to control communications, mm-hmm. is the country may be more open than they would like it to be. And yeah. it's very difficult to roll back. And uh, last major wave of protests uh, spurred by Navalny, I mean, I was able to, this is not academic inquest but just at, literally ping a couple of friends on yeah. contacti on the local facebook and say hey like what do you think about on? what do you think about this what's going on and i got some really interesting answers um so i think yeah versus the cold war generation yeah. literally being able just to call up uh regular people and just talk to them is uh is a big difference um and one that makes the country i wouldn't say easy to understand but easier to understand mm-hmm. more accessible at least yeah, at the very least yeah yeah and and this same process, of course, as you mentioned, is happening in Russia too. Um, the exposure of Russians to life in the West, including the U.S., is much greater than it was during the Cold War. These communication channels allow people, even when they're in Russia, to have a better understanding of what's happening on the outside. But you know, the the potential flip side of it, I suppose, is that you know there's not this idealized vision of what life in the West is like anymore. One of the things that I've noticed has been Russian disillusionment with the West, not only with Western foreign policy, but with Western culture, Western society, Western values. And part of this is obviously a response to appeals that the Kremlin is making to sort of traditional Russian ideas. But, you know, I think it's also based on a perception that okay, we've, we tried this, we, we moved to the West, we sent our kids there, whatever. It's maybe not all that it's, it's cracked up to be. Yeah, to a certain extent, but also, at least in my experience uh, in Russia and with Russians, is that they tend to relate to the West in kind of broad, moral, general terms quite a bit worse yeah. than they do in concrete terms. So I think my favorite anecdote is that... Um, the Russian nationalist who like sends his kids to school but in my experience there's the in russia there's a concrete difference with uh telling your random person on the street or in the store like i'm from america 
I, I one person literally like snapped back, "What you guys are really into war, aren't you?" It's like that was uh, that was what versus saying I'm from New York, mm-hmm. which is I, I mean they might as well be two different countries. Yeah, These are like, right, but like I think that kind of shows the dynamic. America broadly wholesale bad, but New York mm-hmm. is a concrete thing. Very very cool. Right. Russians like that, um, right. or like Western values broadly mm-hmm. bad, but um, right. But hey, I still want a vacation in. The U.S. Or, or whatever villas, Lamborghinis, yeah, great right. uh, property rights. Where you know the state's not going to come and, and seize my assets because they say the wrong thing. Good, yeah, interesting um, dichotomy there. Yeah, but I mean, you also are seeing more, and I think maybe the sanctions have slowed this down to some degree. But you know, Russians who have spent time in the West, done business in the West, trying to go back to Russia and start something up there, despite the the challenges that that, that entails. Um, you know, I don't know numbers. It's not something I really looked into. But again, anecdotally, you hear stories about people who are who want to do this, who want to, you know, sort of bring what they've learned, the, the, the business skills, the culture and everything else and, and bring it back to Russia. Yeah, I think, I mean, that just kind of goes at the whole property rights problem that I mean, Russia's, I think, single biggest issue is that people just are not going to want to engage in entrepreneurial yeah. activity. And I, people say, like, oh, Russia, like, they don't understand capitalism. They're not entrepreneurial. Like, that's not true at all. Like, they're very, very bright people who could start great businesses. The issue is that they don't necessarily want to because right. that's It's all about the institutions huge, or the lack thereof. Huge. Having, having now formally studied political economy um in grad school for for two years uh like the the biggest takeaway in like literally every piece of almost every piece of reading is that institutions are important right uh, that's kind of uh, uh, a refrain but it's one that is actually yeah. <laughs> it actually matters robinson and ajamolu all right um well thank you very very much for having me yeah no thanks for being here and welcome back to csis and uh good luck uh wherever the road may take you thank you very much That is it for our show today. Uh, There is a link to BMB Russia in the show notes. Um, And as always, for those of you who haven't already, uh, you should subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating or a review. If you're not on iTunes, you can check out the podcast and subscribe on either Google Play or SoundCloud. Uh, Again, keep spreading the word and keep enjoying Russian Roulette. One more reminder as well to send us your mailbag questions. Uh, you can send them to rep at csis.org and put the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. You can also follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, uh, and you can follow both myself uh, and Olya directly. Uh, she is at Olya Oliker, and I'm at Dr. J. Mankoff. And of course, thank you to everyone who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. Uh, That includes our research assistant and program coordinator and producer, Cyrus Newland, our intern, Claire Hafner, and the whole CSIS External Relations and iLab team. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon.